0: Barrett, thanks so much for taking time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little bit of information on yourself and kind of how you got involved in real estate and what you're involved in today? Sure. Thanks, guys,
2: for for having me on. I've been in the real estate business for almost 20 years now. Started as a commercial mortgage broker, made it through the GFC by the skin of my teeth, got my MBA during that time, and bought my first building in 2012 ever since then i did a little bit less mortgage brokerage and a little bit more investing until a couple of years ago i looked up and hadn't brokered a loan in several years and spent a lot more time you know doing investments and um back and my track record had grown to a point where you know it was really good had had raised some money from friends and family and that had grown more and more and said hey let's make a go at this actually starting an investment management firm and so that's what I did earlier this year, created a company called Civil Way Equity Partners with a business partner, a guy named Seth Baim, and been off to the races. We focused mostly on opportunity zone deals. That's about 90% of what we're doing today. And um, it's been really fun. So that's resume in, in a nutshell.
0: That's a great foundation. So I know you know you mentioned you're involved in Qualified Opportunity Zones and Funds today. We haven't talked about this on the podcast, I don't know, probably in a year or so at least. Before we dive into all of that, would you just kind of be able to give a brief overview of what a qualified Opportunity Zone is and fun for anybody who may not be aware or just needs a refresher?
2: Yeah, it's a really broad question, right? Because when people hear Opportunity Zone, a lot of times I hear, well, that program is over, right? That has nothing to do with me. You you hear a lot of different things. So let me give the two-minute version of, of what I tell somebody all right, so you sold something last year. Maybe you were involved in a real estate partnership and they sold something. Maybe you sold Apple stock, you sold crypto, anything. But the bottom line is you owe taxes April 15th because of a shorter long-term capital gain. By investing in an opportunity zone fund, you no longer owe those taxes, right? You no longer owe those taxes on April 15th of this year. Now you owe them on April 15th of 2027. So you get a deferral. That's benefit number one you get an interest-free loan from Uncle Sam at a time when loans are very expensive. So that's great. And that's really just the appetizer, not the entree. The huge benefit of Opportunity Zone investing is this next benefit that I'm going to talk about. We use Opportunity Zone investing in real estate. It can be used for other stuff, But the majority of the money that's gone into this system has been used for real estate. Uh, Other people use it for businesses, for crypto farms, for other stuff. Real estate's turned into the bread and butter investment for this. So now you invest into a real estate deal with your Opportunity Zone fund and you plan to hold it for 10 plus years. That's really important because the government allows you, if you stay invested in your Opportunity Zone fund for 10 plus years, then you get to step up to market value that real estate investment when you sell it. Well the only other time the IRS allows you to do that is when you die. Well, I would rather be an opportunity zone investor than die to get a step up to market value. Now that gives you two really big benefits as a real estate investor. Number 1, you pay no capital gains tax on this OZ investment. Really cool. You still pay your your initial gain in April of 2027, but on this new investment you pay no capital gains tax when you sell it. Number two, something that very few people talk about is, and you guys talk with a lot of real estate investors about cost segregation, bonus depreciation. When a normal real estate deal, that's an awesome thing. But what people don't talk about is when they sell it, they have to recapture all those cost segregation and depreciation losses that they've taken over the life of the investment. Well, in OZ, because of the step up to market value all of those losses just get erased magically, and they never have to be recaptured. So it's this really magical tool that like, as long as you hold it and play by all the rules, which there are many, you all of a sudden get this extra bit of investment enhancement by investing through this structure. And so how do you do that? Well, you have to buy something in a certain area. It has to be a certain type of deal, either a new development, substantial improvement, or something that's been vacant for three years. If you do all those things, it is, in my opinion, the most tax-advantaged way to invest in real estate right now. So that's it in a nutshell. Sorry, I got a little long-winded.
0: No, that's actually a really good explanation of it and a really good breakdown. Just to kind of let everybody know what a qualified opportunity zone is, basically, Kind of just give a quick overview. Qualified Opportunity Zone, back in 2017, the government basically came in and they said, look, here's low-income areas, and we want to revitalize these low-income areas, so we're going to designate these as Qualified Opportunity Zones. And if you invest in these Qualified Opportunity Zones and you meet certain criteria with your investments and you invest through a Qualified Opportunity Fund, which is all the benefits that Barrett just mentioned then you will get these tax benefits, basically by revitalizing these these low uh, income areas. So that's kind of what a qualified opportunity zone does. And then the fund is the conduit, the vehicle that allows us to happen, allows you to capture the tax benefits. So what made you choose this strategy? Like, you know, there, There's a ton of different investment strategies you could have went with, this value add, there's all this different stuff out there. Why go with this one?
2: Yeah. So we started, uh, my business partner, Seth, and I were on kind of different tracks, right? I was a mortgage broker. I was in the weeds of doing the financing and deal structuring. His path has been totally different. He's built this property management company to 20,000 units. He does construction management on 50 million bucks a year, mostly renovation and, and all this stuff. And so we had these really different paths, but my job has mainly been like find the good deals, figure out how to financially raise the equity and debt and do all that stuff. And so when we started doing deals in like 2012, it was, it was really easy kind of fish in a barrel type stuff. You just go buy a deal. You would, you would fix it up and and you'd make a bunch of money. Well, we got used to these really big returns. And so as we would underwrite deals in 2014 and 15 and 16, it got harder and harder to make good money or, or to even find deals that underwrote well. And so what we had to do is push harder in different ways to find deals that underwrote appropriately. And so we learned historic tax credits, right? So now all of a sudden we have this cushion that allows us to be more comfortable about the deal. Well, so then we learned another trick called like fractured condo deconversion. So we got into these weird niches. And so then we found a deal in Dallas that was in an area that we knew, but a little too rough. And we said, well, if we could have a lever to pull, maybe we could be comfortable enough to go invest in that area. And that's when we learned Opportunity Zone. Our CPA was an early adopter. Our normal transactional attorney was an early adopter. And we kind of got lucky there. And so we dove into the OZ stuff, truthfully, not really grasping every part of it, but knowing that it would give us an extra cushion, extra little bit of yield so that we could go do that deal. And now that we know it, and that was was two and a half years ago. Now that we understand all of the OZ benefits, we drank the Kool-Aid entirely. So that's it, like, we just dig into these weird niches, and we're willing to do complicated stuff. And now we found OZ, and we love it.
1: Who are the folks that are investing in OZs? Because we work with seven to eight hundred investors. They're all in real estate, and I would say the vast majority of our clients are turned off by OZs because of the ten-year hold period. Yeah, um, they they tend to like a five to seven-year cycle. So, who are you seeing as like the main folks investing in OZs? What types of funds are they using? Too are they like are they coming from equities and then they're putting it into real estate and they're kind of reallocating their portfolio or are they going real estate to real estate? Talk to us about that.
2: Sure. For us, it's been, a, the large majority has been high net worth. And so it's folks who have been LPs in real estate deals or who have you know sold Apple stock or whatever. But how do they think about the 10-year hold? Well, they think of it like a normal real estate deal. So after 24 months, the OZ fund can make a substantial distribution. So we're doing development, we're doing these really big gut renovations and so after a certain period of time we've created a bunch of value so then we go refinance. Well I can distribute that money to the investor. So are we holding for 10 years? Yeah, we're holding for 10 years but the goal is that that investor has received a very large distribution you know in three, five, seven years and so they're not thinking of it like man, I'm writing a $250,000 check and that money's gone for 10 years. No, they're thinking of it like, hey, I'm writing a $250,000 check. Maybe I'm getting back, you know, 100 150 in year 3 or 4, and then I'm getting a regular cash flow stream for the next 6-7 years and then it's getting sold in year 11. So it's it's really a, a different mindset I think than normal. That being said, what I'll I'll add is Hey, 1031 Exchange is still a really fantastic tool, and if somebody has that option, it's likely better than than OZ. So, you know, explore them all.
1: What does the typical life cycle of an OC, OZ deal look like? Like, if you were explaining this to an LP, you you're going to invest the cash. There's going to be some sort of value add, improvement, rehab going on, I presume, and then and then you do the cost egg, Or how, how does that work?
2: Yeah, generally. So we think of the cost egg as like on a substantial renovation deal is three parts, right? So you have the initial cost seg report, then you're going to have a write off report for all the stuff that you rip out and throw away. And then you'll have a renovation report for everything that you added in. So you kind of have the three pieces of the puzzle that all fit together.
0: That was actually the best explanation of a cost, multi-phase cost segregation study I think I've ever heard from anybody, including cost segregation uh, providers. Seriously. <laughs> okay.
1: So so if I pull my money out if another syndication that I'm in liquidates and now I've got this big gain that I'm sitting on I decided to roll it into the OZ fund what does the timing look like like is there a gap between the year of acquisition and the year that you make the cost seg happen or are you doing all that in the year of acquisition
2: Yeah, we can we can do both. What we have done on our first portfolio is we've waited till the renovations done. And just done one cost seg at that point, because it's easier, but you can do it. well also we did it in in 2022. So the last year of 100%. So now as cost seg is, you know, as we're losing that bonus, we would likely do the first cost seg in the year of acquisition to capture the 80% and then wait and do the renovation report once we have all the renovations
1: done. Okay, so so I've invested. I put a hundred k into this syndication, and and they liquidate when I cash out my K one. They'll just say effectively says I've got a hundred k in total gain. Let's say thirty k is depreciation recapture, seventy k is capital gain. Now I can roll forward the seventy k, not the thirty, right? The the depreciation recapture I can't roll into the oz. You're you're the one with letters behind your name. Okay, (laughs) so I can't roll the depreciation, right, Tom? Yeah, you can't can't roll
0: the depreciation recapture from the 1245 property. You can roll it for the 1250 property though. Right,
1: yeah, I can't roll ordinary income. So I've got to pay tax on the depreciation recapture today, but I can roll the 70K of my gain into this qualified opportunity fund. And then I'll have to pay tax on that today. And I'm going to get a cost seg done. Now, how does the cost seg work with basis? I mean, how does that work if you guys do the cost seg Yeah. So your Um,
2: basis, your basis day one in an OZ fund is zero. So the only basis that you're going to have is debt basis.
1: Right. Um, So I'm going to be allocated like qualified non-recourse financing in order to claim the losses coming from the cost seg today. Yep. Okay. Okay. But even then over the span of the 10 years, I'm not going to pay tax on the depreciation recapture nor the additional gain from what I rolled in. Right. If we hold for 10 years. But you, you're you cashing us out as we go along anyway through a refinance. So yeah, interesting. You ready for the next level?
2: Sure. <laughs> okay. So now say, hey, Brandon, you did awesome in a syndication last year and you made a bunch of money. And so instead of investing in a fund that maybe my firm Savoy creates, you say, hey, I made so much money. I want to create the Hall family OZ fund. Okay. So you made a million bucks, not a hundred thousand. You made a million bucks. And you're willing to go through the brain damage to create the whole family OZ fund. So you put a million bucks in there. You invest it with guys like me, other people. And all of a sudden, two, three years down the road, you start getting refinance proceeds back. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now at that point in time, you're going to have an option and that option is because it's past the 24 months. So there's no rules. Option one is you can send that money back to yourself. You can make a distribution and just send yourself back the money. Option number two is you could go invest in more OZ deals. So now you can go invest and go do another apartment development, do another substantial renovation. Now, the beauty here is that 10-year clock that I mentioned, that started today, right? That started whenever you put the million bucks in initially. So if two or three years down the road, you invest in more OZ deals, well, now your clock is only six years or seven years or, or whatever is left remaining. But the 10 years starts the day you write the initial check, okay? For the fund. For your OZ, for the Hall family OZ fund, all right? and And sorry, Tom, I'm leaving you out. But for the Hall family fund... Tom's investing in the Hall fund. Okay, good, good. It's a (laughs) a friends and family type deal. Um, Okay, but so the Hall family fund now got a bunch of refinance proceeds. And instead of distributing it back to yourself, or maybe you distribute a little bit to yourself, but you decided to roll those proceeds into another OZ deal. Now, what does that do? Well, you're investing in more assets that are going to create depreciation losses. You never have to recapture. Plus, when these new deals sell, you don't have to pay capital gains taxes on those. So by putting money in today into an OZ fund, it's like funding a Roth IRA or a 401k or something like that. It's going into this super tax-advantaged account. And if you can, what's the the bigger pockets term? Uh, refinance and repeat, right? Burr, if you can burr. do that, yeah. If you can burr in this in this uh, in the OZ fund,
1: the benefits are phenomenal. So, how long can you do this? Like, so we talk about ten years, but how long? What's the maximum timeline? So the dates are
2: yeah, because people always tell us it's over, right? So you can put money into an OZ fund until the end of twenty twenty six you can buy real estate in an opportunity zone until the end of 2028. And then you can get the step up to market value. You can, the 10 year hold period, right? You can sell and get the market step up until 2047.
1: Wow. So, okay. So you have to acquire everything by 2028. Yep. Can you retrade at that point? Like, can you sell and buy new property after 2028, or you got to hold?
2: So functionally, there's this problem. And I think it'll get fixed, but it might not. And the problem is when they created the map, so there's 8,700 opportunity zones. These are census tracts that are all over the country. There's 8,700 of them. So they created this map. It was certified by the federal government at the end of 2018. And they said, this is the map that's certified for 10 years. Well, that's it. At the end of 10 years... And, that, the map, and that's the
1: 2028.
2: The map disappears. Got it. So after that, there is no more map. So then you you logistically can't buy OZ real estate because the map doesn't exist.
1: Yeah, is there any, any insight on if that's going to be like... There was
2: pending legislation last year when okay. Congress adjourned. It went away. It's going to be reintroduced in about two weeks. And we'll just wait and see. It is bipartisan legislation. It was when it was initially passed, and it still is. It's just got to see what happens in D.C. in the sausage factory.
1: Why would they do this, Barrett? I thought everybody hates landlords.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you know, this is, well, it's bipartisan, right? Democrats like it because you're putting long-term patient investment into low-income areas. Republicans like it because it's a tax cut. It really is one of those rare programs that both parties can get behind.
1: That's awesome. I've never heard I've never heard it explained like in like like any sort of retirement vehicle but the way that you explain it makes total sense. So I can create the Hall family OZ fund. I can put money into it. we can go buy OZ property and uh, I mean especially over the past three years, you've been able to refinance because the market's been running up and you take that capital and you just go buy more and more and more. QOZ property, and you just build this QOZ property portfolio that you're eventually going to get this big step up in basis on. Do I have that right? Yes. Wow, that's amazing. So my and, and the time my, limit for the fund starts when you when you put the money in. Correct fund. Yeah. Jeez, I didn't realize that.
2: <laughs> yeah, nobody does, and and so I've been kind of yelling about this on Twitter for for a year, and yeah. it's been cool to watch people have like the light bulb moment that you just had right yeah. i don't know it's it's neat to do i think what i've realized is that there are cpas that really understand the tax stuff right there's attorneys that really understand the legal stuff and it takes like a real estate operator to synthesize that information and say how can i use this to actually go do deals and create wealth yeah. <laughs> and that's been a fun thing to to both understand and it didn't click for me until uh, 2 years ago and then once i got it to share it so, so it's been a neat journey.
1: So, let's talk a little bit more about some of the rules, and then I and then I want to ask you some operational questions. So, when I put the money into the fund, how what's my timeline on deploying that cash?
2: Well, can we step back? So, because sure. because uh, I think that there's some really tricky rules about when you've had the gain. How long okay. can you put the money into the fund? So maybe start it start on okay. start on first base. So once you've had a gain, there's pretty tricky rules on when you can put money into a fund. So if you personally had a gain, say you sold some stock that you owned or whatever, the rules are very clear. You have 180 days to put the money in. But say you were invested in and, a syndic- And just to
1: clarify, that's short-term, long-term yep. gain. Doesn't matter. Okay. That's it. But say
2: like we talked about earlier, you invested in a syndication. Now the water is really murky, right? Yeah. So you either have 180 days from when the deal actually sold, from like when the gain happened for that partnership, or You have 180 days from the end of the calendar year for that partnership, or you have 180 days from the first tax filing date for that partnership. So what that means logistically is that if you had a partnership that sold something in February of 2022, well, then you had a window from February of August to last year, and then... From August to December of 2022, you were not allowed to invest in an OZ fund. And now, from January to September of 2023, you are allowed to invest in an OZ fund. So there was a black hole. So you just, if it's coming from a partnership, you have to be really careful, but you also have a really long time. (laughs) Mm. So the rules are incredibly permissive, but also a little bit dangerous.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Okay, so so now I've got my cash into the fund. Perfect. What does my timeline look like for that?
2: Yeah, so once your money is in the fund, say that you you decided, "Hey, I the calendar year of the partnership just ended. I have I can January 5th today when we're recording, I can put my money into a fund." Now your fund has essentially till the end of this year to put its money into either real estate directly or into a qualified Opportunity Zone business. Um, And so the way that that works is your fund is tested semi-annually to make sure that at least 90% of its assets are not in cash, are in Opportunity Zone property. And uh, so those tests are on June 30th and uh, December 31st. And the first test doesn't count. So if you put your money in today, um, January 5th, Now the June 30th test is your first one, but it doesn't count. And so the first test that you're actually worried about is December 31st.
0: You basically have like almost the entire year at that point to place the capital into these different funds. So I guess it becomes strategic in what you actually put the money into, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, so the timeline that we just talked about, right? You could have had a, a syndication deal that sold in February of 2022 you could wait until september of 2023 to put the money into the fund and then you would have until june of 2024 to actually buy something so 1031 exchange you got 180 days to close in an oz deal you've got whatever that is you know two plus years uh to actually close on something so it's it's very permissive
1: now I've got the cash. I've got my timelines. What type of property am I looking for? Now and, yes, and, and let's let's assume that I know because I, I know I can go on the IRS website. I know I can download the Census tracks. So let's assume that I are I've already identified the zones.
2: Yep, there's great what, interactive maps out there. So yeah. so three buckets that I talked about earlier. So. Number one, a property that's been vacant for three plus years and vacant is defined by the IRS as 20% or less occupied. So, so that's number one. Number two, a substantial improvement. And what that is defined as is you have to, if you, if you buy a building for five million bucks, you're going to look at the ratio. It's kind of like historic tax credit. If you guys have had an expert on in that. But you're going to say, all right, if I buy it for 5 million bucks, the land is valued at 1 million. The building is valued at 4 million. Now I need to spend another $4 million in improvements. So it's hard, but if you find the right deal, they can be big winners. And then the last bucket that you want to look in is just ground up development. So you're buying vacant land or buying a building that needs to be demolished, and you're going to build something new. So those are the three buckets of deals, vacant, substantial improvement, and and ground-up development.
1: And in practice, what have you seen be most successful?
2: We have done uh, substantial improvement, and we've done ground-up development. Um, Our first set of deals, we bought a portfolio of eight buildings in an area that we liked in Dallas. And they were all gut renovation of 1960s deals, which uh, apartment deals, which fit really well with what we had been doing for a decade. You know what we say, and I think this makes common sense: is that look, the real estate deal has to make sense first, right? All this tax stuff—it's making us smile and giggle. But it doesn't mean anything unless the real estate deal is good, right? Whoa, whoa,
1: whoa, whoa. We like taxes around here, okay? (laughs) (laughs) No, No, you're totally right. We actually, we we tell our clients that too. We were just on a podcast uh, yesterday. We were talking about the same thing. It's don't let the tax tail wag the dog. And if if you're jumping into all of this simply because of the tax benefits, that's when you should really press pause and ask, if there were no tax benefits for any sort of investment, would I still be making this investment? And and maybe the answer would be no. And maybe the tax benefits do get you over the hump because they are real benefits, but you really got to kind of go through the motion of understanding what you're getting yourself into and if it's a good investment, not only like on paper, but for you too. I, I imagine that these are a little bit more intensive investments than That's simply right. buying a, you know, a duplex that I'm going to go rehab. Is that? Would you say that's right too?
2: For sure. Well, and I think you want them to be bigger, right? You want the absolute dollars to be bigger. Is it okay to be a little bit more patient to hit your yield on cost? Sure. You know, is it okay to, to have a little bit more of, of this or that? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be easy. Um, I don't think anything we've done over the last five years has been particularly easy, but it still needs to be a good deal because the tax stuff isn't going to fix it if it's
1: not. That's really great insight there. All right, so I'm buying the properties. I'm doing the ground-up development. When do I do the refinance? Is that like right, right after development or am I letting the property kind of sit for a couple of years?
2: Well, the good thing about multifamily, which is what we do. So everything that my firm does is Texas multifamily. And regardless of what's going on in the world, we've had agency lending. So Fannie, Freddie, HUD. And those guys are very eager to do this stuff and we need to be stabilized for anywhere from 30 to 90 days before we can get a refinance done.
0: And so when you refinance, right? So when you refinance the property, you give the distributions back to the investors. Um, diving into the tax weeds for a second it actually it actually reduces their basis so are, are they having to pay capital gains when they get a distribution right So let's say for example you start off with a zero basis right yeah in the fund and say you know two years goes by is their their basis might be impacted by the income and distributions and whatnot but then when you get this big massive capital gain distribution, say it goes in excess of their basis, you would normally have to pay a capital gain on that distribution right if, if it's an ex do you see that happening a lot?
1: I think that's where the qualified non-recourse finance would yeah. come in, right? Is that what you're saying, too, Barrett?
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, he- so you get the Q and R because you're getting the non-recourse loan secured by real property. So it's a, it's qualified non-recourse gives you at-risk basis in the entity. So, so you can the LP- take the take the loan, or you can take distributions.
0: So even if your LP- capital
1: accounts negative, the LP
0: yes. actually gets assigned qualified non-recourse debt. It's yeah,
1: an that's
2: operating agreement.
1: agreement. Yeah, it's pretty standard uh, with uh, partnership agreements. I mean, it's not all the time, but. A lot of non-recourse debt is allocated to LPs in partnership agreements. So,
2: we had to go through these mental gymnastics when doing the operating agreement, specifically for this reason.
1: Yeah, that's probably a Kaylin thing. Tom doesn't work a lot on the partnership side, so, uh, but Kate, we have a a woman in our firm who is a partnership genius, and um, yeah, so I'm, I'm just repeating what she's told me. <laughs> But yes, um, we do have
2: to be very, you know, very careful about how that gets allocated to, to the LPs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Because if they don't, if you don't allocate any of the, they will go uh, negative. Correct. And Tom's yes. right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. Which is just my concern. It's just like, okay, we want to make sure that's, you know, this little bow on that.
2: What I pair it to people every day is like, look, we've learned a bunch of rules over the past couple of years, and a, a few of those rules are really, really important like there are these cliffs in opportunity zone investing. And once you walk off of them, there's not a ladder to get back up, right? Mm -hmm. You're just, you're toast. And so you have to know them. One of them's the the basis going negative. And if you miss the 70-30 test or the 90-10 test or or multiple others. And so uh, we use an outside firm to do our our semi-annual compliance. We use the same firm that we've used for a long time to do our annual tax prep. But yeah, you have to be really careful about certain things and that's one of them.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so going back to this fund idea, because I'm I'm really interested in this. Okay. So I I create Hall Enterprises so QOZ or Hall Hall QOZ Family Fund. I, I roll gain in. I understand my timelines. I identify a QOZ. I identify the property. I buy the property. I do the substantial improvement. Um, and I it, it, I just keep so I refinance and I buy another one and I just keep doing that all through 2028. Are you seeing people just do that themselves, or are they are they investing in QOs in QOFs? Like, 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 are 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 more people creating their own funds, or are they investing in these funds that already exist? Because I know there's a few of these like super large funds out there that people can invest in.
2: Yeah. So what I like to say is, look, there's multiple ways to get involved in the oz world, right? So you can hit the easy button and you can invest with the Goldman Sachs OZ fund, right? And you just write them a check and they take care of everything and you're in their fund. Number two, you could invest in uh, an OZ fund with a small operator, right? And they're going to tell you, we're going to buy XYZ assets. You can go... And and with Goldman Sachs, by the way, you have no clue what they're buying, right? They might give you a general strategy, but they'll go do what they want. Um, They might also allocate funds to guys like me. And then you're getting charged four layers of fees. Now, number two, you can go write a check to a smaller group. They'll tell you exactly what they're going to buy. And then they might not ever roll your money to another deal. You're just going to do the deals you initially agreed to. And then when the money's done, they're going to send it back to you. Now, number three, you can create the Hall Family Fund. And then you can invest in the QOZB of individual developers. So you don't ever have to be the real estate developer. You're just investing as an LP with OZ developers. And that's something that's very possible, right? You're just becoming an allocator. The issue I've seen people run into is you've got to have a really good network to do that, right? Because if you just want to go do a normal apartment syndications, like there's, it's pretty easy, right? But to find OZ developers, you really need to build that network out pretty sufficiently just to see deal flow. And then the final step would be, hey, I'm going to go set up my own OZ fund and do my own deals. And that's really like the expert level, right? And so you can be anywhere on that spectrum, but I see people do it all. And so on the deals that we do, we have investors that come into funds that we create. And we also have investors that have their own funds that come in. And so at the deal level, we have a QOZB that owns the real estate. And then like our last deal, we had a dozen Opportunity Zone funds that invested into the QOZB. So one of those was an institutional OZ fund. One of those was a fund that we created. And then 10 of them were like the Hall family OZ fund, right?
0: This is really interesting. I didn't realize before this how many different ways you could really get involved. Or not that I didn't realize it, but... You know, it's, it's one thing when you hear someone explain it the way you did, um, it kind of hits a little harder. So, we went through the different ways that you can get involved in the fund. Like, who should not get involved for in this? If someone's consider, is there any reason why, is there people who should just not do this at all?
2: Well, two big things that I think we've already, well, one we've already touched on, right, is that, look, it is a 10 year investment and there's a pretty high degree of illiquidity. And so, you know, are we hoping to refinance and give people a liquidity event in a few years? Yes, we are. Is that guaranteed? No, definitely not. And so understanding that, and that dovetails very well to something we started with, you still have a tax burden in 2027, right? From your initial gain. And so, how do you deal with that? Well, a lot of people are investing the entire gain into an OZ fund and hoping for a refinance. I'm an advocate of not doing that, right? So, hey, Brandon had a million dollar gain last year. Don't put the whole million bucks into an OZ fund, right? Put 700,000, put 800,000, put the other 200,000 into T bills for three years. And then those are sitting there and earning interest. Now he's got money to pay his tax bill on the 700. And by the way, on that 200 that he didn't put into an OZ fund, he's going to owe taxes. So pay 40 in taxes, put 160 in T bills, earn interest pay the taxes on the 700 or 800 that he put into the OZ fund without taking a distribution from the OZ fund, right? So you can do it a different way and not be worried, oh crap, is this deal that I invested in going to make a refinance or not? I think that there's a better way.
0: That is very well said because like, yeah, a million and one things could happen that a refinance cannot happen. So you have to take it upon you as like yourself. If you're putting yourself in the investor's shoes, making sure that you're, you're covering your bases, you can't rely on that.
1: Isn't the risk free rate right now like five percent or something? Or <laughs> it's, it's, it's like ridiculous. So so if decent. you were to do yeah. that, if you were to cash your two hundred out, pay 40 in taxes, roll 116 T bills. I just did the math. You got like four years until you got to pay the tax, you'd be back up to 194K. So just it ain't bad. Yeah. Compounding. I'm compounding, I'm not just taking straight interest, but you know, it's it's not bad, not a bad deal.
0: <laughs> yeah, T bills on a sidebar, they're actually doing pretty well. A lot of people putting their money in T bills, so not a bad place to store cash.
2: I've used that example before, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> what else is there left to cover in this? Like, is there anything else that investors need to be aware of if they're considering something like this? Anything we've not covered?
2: We've talked about a heck of a lot. You guys tell me from a CPA perspective what I don't know yet. You know, I like this stuff, so. I, mean, tell, I don't know, man. Tell the, me which rabbit hole to go down I next.
0: <laughs> I mean, I mean, you're probably the most sophisticated person, at least I've talked to on this subject, who really understands everything inside and out. So I'm pretty sure we covered a majority of our basis. I guess the one thing I just do want to throw in there for anybody who is listening, that step up in basis, right? So uh, if you were to, had invested up until, t- I think uh, it was December 31st, 2021, you get that step up in your initial basis of your capital gain. That's no longer possible. So, if anybody's thinking about that, that's the part that's no longer possible. But, you know, like Barrett said, that's the
1: 10% and the 5% that you're talking about.
0: Right, yep. right. So, basically, if you would have invested by December 31st, 2019, uh, you would have been able to hold your initial capital gain in that fund for at least seven years until you got to that 2020, the end of 2026 when the deferral is up, if you will. Yes, you would pay in, in April of 2027, but that deferral is up, you had that seven-year hold and you would get a 10% step up in basis in your original investment. So for example- if Plus you were, five,
1: right? You get like a 15, I think.
0: Yeah. So there's a five-year hold and then there's a seven-year hold. So if you would invest by 2019, it would have been all the way up to that seven-year hold. You would have got the 5% step up and then an additional 10% step, excuse me, 10% step up for the first five years, and an additional 5% for the next two years for a total of 15%. So for example- If you would have invested $100,000 in capital gains just to keep the math easy, you could do it a million dollars, whatever, you would have basically only paid tax on $85,000 in 2026. After 2019, that full 15% step up is no longer available. Um, You then could still get the 5% step up if you would have invested by December 31st, 2021, right? So you would have got that 10% step up, but that's no longer available. So right now, you still get the deferral if you invest today.
1: And Barrett, I guess my last question for you is with the market turning, I don't want to say turning, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's I'm liking this, like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to talk about it because it's like, it's just we're been in, on such a different boring run and now yeah. it's down 15%. But it's like, is it really down 15% if it's been up like 200? But anyway, the market's like, you yeah. know, potentially turning in 2023, 2024, going flat, going down, whatever. Do you foresee a lot more opportunity in this space as a result of that especially if people understand the whole concept of create my own fund buy distressed real estate in these QOZs, refinance do it again do it again do it again do it again by 2028 i mean do you see a lot of people flooding into this as they learn about this or
2: look if the goal is to buy assets that you want to hold for a long time and you want to create value then it's really important that you buy at a great basis I think that we're going to have good opportunities over the next year or two to buy at a great basis on certain things. We didn't have our pedal to the metal over the last year or two. I think that we might over the next, and so we're certainly excited about what opportunities the
0: market may give us. So you see, you see the market softening over like the next one or two years, and that's oh. going to be in a, a buying opportunity. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. All
1: right. Final question from me, and then I'll pass it to Tom see if he has any final questions. Um, can I put? non-gain into QOFs? Like like let's say I don't have a gain but I I've, I've got a million dollars of cash that I've already paid tax on and I don't know what to do with it. Can I put a million dollars into a QOF and still benefit from all the uh like the the 10-year gain benefits like wiping out the gain, or the additional gain and the depreciation recapture?
2: No, but you should be able to, right? The point of this legislation was like to create long-term patient investment in low-income communities. Why does it have to be a capital gain? It's really dumb but the rules are the rules and it has to be a gain. So I read this article on schwab.com or something talking about tax gain harvesting. And I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then I read it. I'm like, wait, does that actually make sense? I don't know. You guys tell me, but it's like, all right, if you want to reallocate your portfolio, you look at like which stocks have gone way up and then you sell some of them to reallocate and you create gains And in their perspective, they were like, well, you just, you're creating these gains and you match them with your losses and it doesn't matter. And my brain, because all I think about is OZ, is no, you create the tax gains and then you start your OZ fund with it. And then we had this really high net worth family office who created gains selling stocks last year. And then the next day, they bought the stock back because they liked the stock. So they created a capital gain when they did that. And then they invested in the OZ fund from their checking account. I said, huh, I don't know. They've got a bunch of money for a reason. Maybe they're smarter than me. But they basically created a gain, reset their basis in their stock portfolio, and then started investing. So there's ways that some folks are using to create gains just to make OZ investments because they like how tax-advantaged the structure is.
1: That's fascinating. Yep. That's really fascinating. How, how much money do you think... Sorry, I know I said I had one more question, but I keep coming up with them. How much money do you think you really need? Like, like how much money does a QOF need to get started? And I know it can be really any amount, but like how much are you kind of saying, do we need 500K cash, a million cash? Like, what are you looking at technically?
2: So like for the whole family fund, right? For you to set it up and you're different, right? Cause you're a CPA, you're doing your own return and compliance and everything. So for John Doe out there, I would say it's 500K. The setup cost is probably three to five grand. The annual compliance and filing is probably five grand. It's expensive and there's brain damage. Because like I said earlier, you have to go out and you have to create a network of guys to actually put the money to work or you've got to go be a developer. It's, It's work. So now your alternative is like either write a check to Goldman Sachs or... Find groups that you can invest with that you like their deals. And I mean, we have investors that have millions and millions of dollars of gains that have chosen not to start their own OZ fund. They just invest as an LP in other OZ funds because they want to hit the easy button.
0: Right, right. Cause I was going to say, cause if you had like a gain of like a hundred thousand, it might not be worth all that drag, right? Oh, but for if you sure. just, go, just go and invest with someone like you who already just has this, the fund set up, it's like we're just taking our capital gains, put it directly into your fund. And then, you know, you, you would ha- be handling all that. It's more efficient at that point. That's it. All right. This is very interesting. I did not realize how powerful this strategy actually was until this podcast. I knew the tax benefits were there. And I saw a lot of people struggling to actually make this work. I can see a lot of people on a smaller scale struggling, right? Because of all the compliance costs, because of everything it takes to pull this together. But this is actually really, really eye-opening.
1: I already bought the domain name Castelli Family OZ Fund. I'll sell it to you. And then I'll get, and then I'll, and then the gain that I get, I'll roll into my QOZ fund. Yeah. Well,
0: are you holding it for inventory or you're holding it for investment purposes? There don't to <laughs> to say.
1: There's no money. a squatter.
0: It's <laughs> a squatter. That's right. I'm squatting on Tom's <laughs> Tom'sozfund.com. <laughs> I, if investors wanted to learn more about this thing maybe wanted to, to learn about uh, investing with you, uh, you know, what would be the best way that in- investors can learn more?
2: Yeah. So I'm super active on Twitter, write threads about it, put out a bunch of content. And I would encourage anybody to follow me there, reach out to me there, DM me there. That's probably the easiest way. Also, uh, company website, SavoyEquityPartners.com.
0: All right, also, we're going to go ahead, we're going to drop that in the show notes for anybody who's listening, who does want to dive deeper, learn more about this type of stuff. Barrett, want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an amazing episode and uh, really looking forward to, to putting it out there. Great to speak with you guys. Thanks so much. Happy New Year.
1: Thanks for listening to today's show.